We're going to continue on in Matthew. Actually, wrap Matthew up. So we're in Matthew 26, and if you know Matthew and you're wondering, hey, well, there's two more chapters, you've already covered those, so you can go back in the archives. Um, so I think most recently um, have picked up where we're going to be leaving off this morning around Easter in a series called In My Place. So if you are excited and you want to read on after this morning, you can just go back and you can find all of that online at theshorechurch.ca. Um, yeah, we're going to be in Matthew 26, continuing on in verse 47 on, as I've read through this, this week, looking at the betrayal, the arrest, and the trial of Jesus. This is, by the way, very familiar territory for a lot of us. We know these stories really well. But some, something stuck out to me that I don't know that I've really noticed before, and, and I began to zero in on Jesus' response. So he's going to have a number of interactions, and I just start, I want to, this morning with our time, zoom in, take a look at Jesus' response to four specific situations. Um, they'll be up on the screen if you're a note taker. I love you. This is kind of the format of how we're going to be taking a look at this this morning. The first is Jesus' response to the kiss of a betrayer. Secondly, his response to the sword of a friend. Thirdly, his response to the accusation of his opponents. And lastly, his response to the demands of the high priest. So that's our format. That's where we're going. Um, while you open your Bibles to Matthew 26, verse 47, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I, I just thank you for your faithfulness and the assurance that your word doesn't return to you void. We see this all the time, but... Um, we're just coming into this, trusting that your word's not going to return void. It's going to accomplish all that you have set forth for it this morning. Um, what I've prepped, I pray, Holy Spirit, come and ignite. Come and encourage and build up. Would you uh, ignite fires for the first time in some hearts? Would you fan into flame others? Would you whet our appetite for you, clear our vision so we would see you more clearly in the glory of all that Christ is um, presented to us in the scripture. And so we're desperate for you, Holy Spirit, in order to do this. We need your empowering. I need your empowering. So ask for that now, and I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So you left off with um, Jesus having just celebrated the Passover meal. Passover meal, then he takes his disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, the weight of the world starts to land on his shoulders. The sin of the world lands on his shoulders. He's He's, he's not panicking, but he's, he's feeling this. And he invites his disciples to come up and pray with him, enter into a, a time of prayer. Um, and as he woke them up the final time at the end of where you had just left off, um, they keep falling asleep. He wakes them up and he says, the hour is now at hand. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's get going. And now enter the first um, interaction that Jesus is going to have now enter, enters his betrayer in verse 47. So I want to invite you to read with me Matthew 26, verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking these words, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they seized, or they came up to him, they laid hands on him, and they seized him. So Jesus had just finished telling them the betrayers at hand, and then in walks Judas. 
Judas, one of the 12. We might have a different name for him. We might think of him differently. The scripture, all throughout the Gospels, refers to him as one of the 12 because it's one of Jesus' inner posse. He'd spent the last three years with Jesus. He'd committed his life to the teachings and followings, and he'd been following him around. He'd walked thousands of miles, likely, through the Judean hillside with Jesus. Um, But a little earlier in the text, he'd left them in the upper room during the discourse. He'd went over to the high priests, and he'd negotiated. He'd negotiated 30 pieces of silver if he delivered Jesus over. And, and, And now we see him returning, and it says, with a great crowd great crowd with swords and clubs. It's interesting. It's interesting to ponder what would motivate Judas? What would motivate him to do this? The guy sacrificed much of his life to follow Jesus around. He's invested a lot. Why at this point turn on him? What changed? And it really presents the question of like, why does anyone walk away from following Jesus? Some, some look at this text and they see Judas as someone who had no choice. In Luke 22, after all, it says that um, Satan entered into Judas and then he went and sought out the high priests. And so people might look at this and go, well, Satan entered him. He had no choice. Satan made him do it. And that's actually kind of a fun Google search. Go into Google News. Google search, Satan made me do it. People still claim this today. I had no choice. But it's important that we notice um, Judas is not an innocent bystander. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just overtaken by Satan. Um, grandmothers on their way home from um, the church quilting club as they pass a dark alley don't just suddenly get overtaken by demonic presence there. Satan entered Judas was a consensual act. The, the idea of, of demon possession, actually, if we take a look at it, if we go in um, and take a look at the Greek language where we borrow this from, the Greek word daimonzai, it actually communicates more along the lines of demonized or demon-oppressed or demon-influenced than demon-possessed. No, nobody's just randomly becomes the unwilling marionette of the Dark Lord. It doesn't just happen like that. He doesn't just pounce on you. There's... Uh, there's something that happens. There's, there's a relationship that begins long before that. What happens is that we increasingly give in to our fleshly desires, our sinful motives, and over time, we relinquish control. We end up not possessed, but oppressed, influenced. But it always begins consensually. It's a partnership. And so Satan didn't cause Judas to betray Jesus. He didn't cause him to value 30 pieces of silver more than the savior of the world. Judas already had a long pattern of giving over to these things, of overvaluing money. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. Um, We know, as we read the gospel accounts, Judas managed the money bags for Jesus' disciples. And, um, and we, we read in the scriptures that he had, a, he had a habit of helping himself to it. He, he's a little greedy. You remember um, the story of Jesus in John 12? Um, Mary breaks open the alabaster jar, spills the nard, the perfume, that expensive, all over Jesus' feet. And Judas, he, he, 
he opposes it right away. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. We could have sold that for 300 pieces of silver. We could have made all this money, given it to the poor. But then the text says he actually had no interest in the poor. He said this because he wanted to get his own hands on it. The point is, Judas didn't suddenly betray Jesus. He had cultivated a place for this sin to grow for a long period of time. He'd made a pattern of acting upon his indulgences for a very long time, and uh, he'd given a place for this desire to grow, and it eventually just grew out of there. If you've been tracking the news at all the last few months, um, there's been some sad stories in the news, um, stories of notable pastors, worship leaders, people who've once professed faith in Christ just walking away. You've likely seen some of these. Um, very sad stories. I read a story this week of a pastor who, um, being accused of just some terrible sexual crimes. And the thing with this, like Judas, is these never just happen in a moment. We never just, in a moment, turn and walk away. It's not a sudden moment of betrayal. It's a long pattern of betrayal. There this is the fruit of seeds that we've planted and allowed to grow. They're the visible fruits of cultivated roots. Judas's betrayal is something that he's been doing for a long time. This is just the full fruit of it. And Judas, he betrays Jesus for the exact same reason that people, and, and maybe even we have betrayed Jesus as well, and that's in order to get things that we value more. The things that we betray Jesus for reveal what we think will save us. The things that we betray Jesus for reveal what we think will save us. And honestly, we could just park right here, preach this point all day. Um, you and I, we're Judas in this story. Judas, he's been following Jesus for three years um, but he's just finally figured out that the kingdom of God isn't what he thought it was going to be. And so he betrays Jesus and he sells him out. And if you're like me, you've done this. And if you're like me, you've done it for a lot less than 30 pieces of silver. What I want us to see, though, is not just that you and I are like Jesus, are Judas. I want us to see Jesus' response here. The text tells us this the darkest blotch in human history. He approaches the brightest light that's ever shone and he kisses him on the cheek. And in the midst of this most heinous of betrayals, I want, want us to notice what Jesus says. He says, verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. And it's this word friend that I find interesting. If you take it to the Greek, I've got it up on the screen. It's this Greek word, um, hytairos, hytairos. In our text, um, if your Bible, if you're reading the ESV like me, it translated as fr translates this word hytairos into English as friend, um, but it can mean partner or maybe better translated comrade, comrade. If you're not familiar um, with this word comrade, um, often gets used in, we think of like communist, socialist settings. So you kind of imagine, um, say, uh, a Russian soldier running into another soldier in the woods who's donning the red flag. He would come up to him and say, comrade, because he knows that they're partners. They're, they're engaged in the same battle. They're, they've got their shoulder to the same plow. 
So when, but Jesus uses this word when he refers to Judas, and he's calling him a partner or a comrade. And I find this response amazing as I thought about this, as I, as I saw this, um, because while Judas is selling Jesus out, he's selling Jesus, Jesus out because he isn't helping him achieve the kingdom that he wants. Jesus is calling um, Judas comrade because Judas is helping bring about the kingdom that he came to bring. See that? Judas, in every sense, is a villainous traitor. He's opposing Jesus by his own volition, but he's actually serving and accomplishing the plan of God. He, he played a central role. He's a comrade to it. He's a partner in it played a central role in sending Jesus to the cross and thereby accomplishing God's plan of salvation through the death, burial, resurrection, glorification of Christ. Jesus' assurance in the midst of betrayal, it gives me assurance as I see him face a betrayal with confidence in the word of God like that. It gives me confidence. It should give you confidence. It should give all of us Assurance, because if God is sovereignly in control as he says he is, then his plan won't be thwarted and cannot be thwarted by the most heinous of backstabbing. He's in control, and I love the poise that I see Christ face it with. Romans 8, we have the confidence, it says, that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Psalm 139 says, that in his book were written every single one of our days when as yet there were none. Isaiah 54 says, no weapon fashioned against us can prosper. Isaiah 41 says, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand, and it's I who say to you, fear not, for I am the Lord. We have a confidence. He's sovereign even over betrayals such as this. And it's because of these unshakable promises of God that Jesus responded the way he did, but it's also um, the same hope that serves as the anchor in the midst of our storms and our trials. Whatever might come towards us, we have that same hope. You and I, we are a lot like Judas, but we also have the confidence that when we face Judas's, that God is sovereignly in control and working for us as well. Uh, read on with me in verse 50, we'll pick it up. So Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and, and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I can't appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me then, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This leads us into the second interaction Jesus has. And we're gonna take a look at how he, he responds to the sword of a friend sort of a friend. And I love this last line we just read, that all this has taken place in order that the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. You don't need clubs and swords. He's saying, why would I resist? This is the plan. 
The plan all along is that I would be captured. The battle Jesus came to fight isn't fought with swords and clubs. There's no such thing, um, in other words, as Christian holy wars, the ones that have been fought and that they are not Christian holy wars. If there was ever a time to fight, it's right here when the leader's being taken captive. But Jesus didn't come to fight. And this is why he says to Pilate, um, John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom isn't of this world. Otherwise, if it were, my servants would have fought. Didn't come to fight. But you and I, I know I do, like Peter, we have a tendency to fight. We fight because we misunderstand this kingdom of God uh, that Jesus came to bring. We fight to save face. We fight to prove ourselves. We fight to defend ourselves. We fight to appear wise. We fight because we don't want to apologize. Uh, we fight to get even with someone. We fight because somebody else started the fight with us. We fight to feel power. We fight. We're prone to it. We fight to protect our idea of our kingdom. We don't want our kingdom to be invaded, so we fight. We fight to protect something that we think we have, our, our ideals. We fight to make heaven something that happens for us now, to make glory something that we taste fully right now. The question I have for all of us, we're fighting, but what are we fighting? What are we fighting to protect? What kingdom are we defending? We all have a, a tendency towards this in a different way. Um, if you don't know, you can ask someone you know, like, hey, what, what do I fight to defend? It's a vulnerable moment, but it's good insight. You see, Peter, he pulls out his sword to defend his little kingdom, his idea of what Jesus was coming to bring. But notice, Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't defend it. If anything, if, surprise me, if anyone has something to defend, it's Jesus here. But listen to his response in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place. Put your sword back where it belongs. And it's sheath. And he gives three reasons in the text why. Put your sword back. Firstly, for all who take the sword will perish by it. First reason not, not to take the sword is it's fatal. It's fatal. What's he, what's he getting at? I don't, I don't think he's saying like, hey, all, if you go to the battlefield, you're going to die on it. If you play with fire, you might get burned. I don't think that's what Jesus is meaning. I think what he's saying is that if you live life, if you, pardon me, if you take a life by the sword to defend your kingdom, uh, not only have you misunderstood the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, but you'll be subject to punishment. I think he's referring back to Genesis 9-6 where it says, whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. I think he's saying, you out and kill someone, you have now incurred death on yourself. Now some, some push back. I mean, as Mennonite brethren, as a, a tradition, we're pacifists. I know people push back against this. I know there's just war theories. I know all of this. I don't want to crack that egg open. What, but I do feel obliged um, to point out, I mean, if there's ever a worthy cause, was it not this? What better cause than the Son of God being nailed to a cross trying to prevent that? 
What I, but what I want us to see is that the things we go to war for reveal what we're hoping in. The things we go to war for reveal what we're hoping in. And so as you examine just the moments where you're prone to fight, you're quickly going to find the thing that you're believing is going to save you, whether that's a right opinion or that's more money, or I don't know what you fight for. I know what I fight for, but when we examine what we fight for, we quickly find out what we're hoping in. This is true in the, piece of, uh, place of, uh, the case of Peter, and it's true for us as well. So Jesus tells him to park his sword, one, because it's fatal. Secondly, it's foolish. It's foolish. Take a look at verse 53. He says, Do you think I can't appeal to my father, and he will... Not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. It's foolish because Jesus says, I've got angels at my disposal. 12 legions, that's, that's uh, 72,000. If you're wondering how big is a legion, 12 of them, 72,000. That's the population of Chilliwack, um, except angels instead of cow farmers. So I don't know which is more scary, to be honest. If you're from Chilliwack, Welcome. Welcome here this morning. We love farmers. I'm glad you're here. Um, It's foolish because I've got all the angels of heaven at my disposal. Second reason, um, John 18, um, Jesus tells us that, or sorry, John tells us when the mob approached, in in John's account, he says, um, Jesus went up and said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And, And he said, I am he. And the crowd fell to the ground. Jesus flexed his might. He said, hey, you can't do anything to me unless I let you. It's foolish, one, because he has angels at his disposal. Two, because he's the God of the universe and he can do whatever he wants. He says his name and they stick to the ground. They stand back up. He says it again. They're stuck on the ground again. It's fatal. It's foolish. The third reason he gives, verse 55, 56, is that it's foretold. So at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching you didn't seize me. But all this took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Saying, Peter, the kingdom you're fighting for is not the one I came to bring. And if you did stop this, Peter, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? Like Peter... Have we perhaps made the kingdom Jesus came to give synonymous with the kingdom that we want? Let me word that differently. Are we fighting to defend a kingdom other than what Jesus came to bring? Jesus' response here is these three warnings. It reminds us the kingdom he came for cannot be stopped. We have that assurance It encourages us to lay down our arms, to to lay down our battles, to to quit defending lesser things. It invites us to put our swords away and anchor our hope in God's promises that can't be thwarted, to stop our fighting for fleeting kingdoms and to strive after a kingdom that can't be taken away. We took a look at... um, now Jesus' response to the kiss of a betrayer, the sword of a friend. I want to take a look at the accusation of his opponents. It says, verse 57, 
Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. They found none, even though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? You might think, because Jesus had no response here, and we're taking a look at the responses of Jesus, maybe this third point we just skip over and jump right to the fourth, but there's actually a lot that's being communicated in Jesus's lack of response here. Um, they come, they, they nab Jesus before the sun's even up. Now they brought him in for a trial. And this, this whole process, if you step back and take a look at it, it's really quite ironic. They're, they're bringing him in under um, charges of being an insurrectionist, of trying to form a mob and overthrow Rome. And they come and find him and 12 people with a mob. They're the ones coming with a mob. Actually, um, most people would say this, this crowd that showed up was around 600 people. So they show up with 600 people. They show up with swords and clubs and threaten him of trying to start a revolt. It's funny. Uh, they, they come accusing Jesus of planning exactly what he's just rejected. War. And then it says that they're seeking false testimony in order to incriminate and sentence him to death with. So they needed some testimony because they needed some false testimony because there was no real reasons. They have no reason to arrest him. They just don't like him because he challenges their kingdom. And so even though they paid people um, lots of money to come forward, they couldn't find any accusation that would stick. And Matthew says here, at last... At last, after hearing many people, they found two witnesses. Um, this was, by the way, the legal requirement. The law required this. Deuteronomy 19, 15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, in Mark 14, though, in his account of this, it's pointed out that the two witnesses' testimonies didn't even match up. They didn't even have that. They also aren't properly communicating what Jesus said. If you'll remember back um, earlier on, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Meaning his own body. They've contorted it to say Jesus has said he was going to destroy that temple so they're saying, he's come, he's, come, he's going to come and raise the city. He's going to come do... They're twisting his words. But again, what's so ironic about this, as I think about it, is that without realizing it, they're actually helping fulfill the very thing that Jesus did mean with that sentence. They're, they're fighting to kill him, and that's what Jesus said, you're going to destroy me. You're going to destroy me. In three days, I'll raise it up again. Do you see that? Just all throughout this, Jesus is leading them into a trap over and over and over. They just they keep fulfilling what he said was going to happen, even when they're trying to fight it. 
So they bring person after person, twisting his words right in front of him, dragging the one who scripture says upholds the universe by the word of his power into a kangaroo court, telling lies, bringing false witnesses, and they can't stop the thing that Jesus said was going to happen. They actually accomplish it. Throughout this, as witness after witness is brought, the, the chief priests, the council, they're probably just praying Jesus says something that they can grab hold of and twist and condemn him and damn him with. But again, I'm just amazed by Jesus' response. It says, they ask him, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? This false testimony, these lies. And, and the text says in 63 that Jesus remained silent. said nothing. I find myself in situations all the time where I'm like, why couldn't I just stay quiet? I don't know if you're, that happens to you. Usually I say something I shouldn't have. I got an amazing one-liner a good sarcastic jab I can throw in. You know, if you're funny like me, um, you know it can be hard not to say these things. It's very difficult. I maybe shouldn't have said that. It's very difficult sometimes. Thinking about Jesus standing here in front of these crowds, lying about him, and yet saying nothing, it astounds me. The God of the universe just taking it. This picture of Jesus, the just judge of the world, being submitted to the most unjust trial you could imagine. It appalls me. And, and actually, there's a lot more injustice going on here than we might have immediately noticed. Um, the justice system at the time, as we heard, it required two witnesses required two witnesses. We already know they didn't have them. They didn't have two witnesses, and they didn't have witnesses that agreed. Um, the trial was legally to be held in the Hall of Judgment, a specific place for trials, but we found out that they came and grabbed Jesus in the night, and they brought him over to Caiaphas's house. They're holding a trial where it wasn't supposed to be being held. They, they've got him on trial before the sun's even up, probably because they don't want the crowds to wake up, the crowds who've loved Jesus this past week in the city. Um, people would rise up to his defense. They would correct and say, Jesus didn't actually say that. They don't want witnesses. They don't, they don't want him to have a defense. So they're holding this at night, which, by the way, also broke their law. Trials needed to be held at a very specific point in the day, and they couldn't pass that point because they didn't want anyone making judgments to not be awake yet or be tired. They, they broke their own law. As well, in order for somebody to be sentenced, they needed to have a majority vote of the Sanhedrin, and then that person would be, um, there'd be a judgment that would come out, but sentencing wasn't allowed to happen for two more days. Two more days. So there needed to be a full 24-hour period between judgment and sentencing, and the, the council was required to fast, to fast and seek God on what his judgment should be. Likely because the day after this is a fast day and they are eager for the buffet table, they're rushing this. They're just rushing the whole thing through. They're breaking all of their own laws in order to judge Jesus. They seize him without a charge. 
They try him without reliable witnesses. They convict him without a defense. And they're going to have him murdered before the sun even sets. This is where the text is going. They break all of their own laws. Jesus knows where it's going. He knows the injustice of this. And he's silent. Isaiah 53, it says, Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This astounds me. How could he do it with way more self-control than I have? But why? Why did Jesus do this? Read the rest of Isaiah with me. This is up on the screen. Isaiah 53, um, 7 to 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did Jesus endure this? Why did he stay silent? Because of what it would accomplish, because of what the word promised him. Because it's through the judgment of this corrupt kangaroo court that God's justice would be poured out on Jesus instead of us. And God's grace would be poured out on us because of Jesus. More scandalous than this court trial is the scandal that God would use this to bless us. And Jesus knew this. And so he acted on it. This is why Jesus stood silent, not responding Till in verse 63, the high priest stands up and he demands a response from Jesus. Um, this is going to be our fourth point, is Jesus' response to the demands of the high priest. And the high priest stands up and he invokes a sacred oath. Verse 63, he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now this was a, a sacred oath. Jesus... Jesus' answer is unbelievable here. Um, the, the priest, he skillfully worded this in such a way that really to force upon Jesus an alternative. Either he denies who he is or he confesses who he is and he condemns himself. So either he denies who he is or he, or he rightfully says who he is and gives the high priest what he needs in order to condemn him. It's a trick question. It's a trick question, but listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 64, Jesus said, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You have said so. He said, 
I adjure you, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you've said so. And then, then he quotes Daniel 7, some imagery um, referring to God coming. Um, Daniel 7 says that, um, the high pr- or that the, the Son of God would come. He'd be given all glory and dominion. So he's referring back to a very popular um, piece of scripture. Um, but all in all, this is a claim at divinity. It's a claim at divinity, and of course, this gets the high priest in a big old twist. Big twist. 65, it says, then the high priest tore his robes. You're only allowed to tear their robes um, at religious outrage. They would tear their robes when they were outraged at how God had been blasphemed. And so he does this action out of outrage, kind of saying, oh, it's outrageous what you've just done to God, not realizing what he's doing to God. He says, he tore his robes. And he says, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard it. What's your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Deserves death. Now, if Jesus hadn't said anything, they would have had nothing and they wouldn't have, wouldn't have even been able to condemn him. He literally could have said anything else, just thrown out a pile of word salad and he would have been okay. But what he does by testifying to who he is, he actually provides the, the high priest with the fodder that he needs to condemn him. And there's a reason he did this. And since the high priest asked a trick question, Jesus gives a trick answer. I, I'd never seen this before, but it, it came up this week, and it, it, let me show it to us. The Jewish law, it stated, um, no one could be put to death because of their own witness out of testimony they provide. They couldn't, you couldn't self-incriminate yourself. You still needed to have two witnesses that would verify what you had said in court. But the Jewish law also said that if anyone blasphemes the name of God, that they were to be put to death. So, but the thing is, is Jesus is only blaspheming if he's lying about who he is. And so what he does is he forces them to become the two witnesses that testify to and, and forces them to, to say either you're God or you're not. He's forcing them to decide who he is. He's forcing them to be the two witnesses necessary for somebody to be incriminated by their own testimony. Either they call him who he rightly is and bow down and worship him, or they call him a liar and then they fo- are forced to put him to death. It's a genius move, but it only gets more genius because Deuteronomy 17.7, this is up on the screen, it states that it's the hand of the witnesses themselves who are to be the first in putting the person to death. Simply put, if they condemn him, they have to kill him, and therefore his blood would be on their hands. What he's doing is he's setting them up. They damn themselves if they're wrong in their judgment of who he is. But it gets more interesting. Deuteronomy 19 is up there as well. What we learn there is that if anyone bears false testimony against someone, that what they're proposing to be done to the individual would in turn be done to them. Not a lot of people line up to testify um, falsely when you realize what could, could happen to you that way, so that's why they put it in there. So... What he's done is either way, either way, they're going to be guilty of death. Whether they call him Lord or not, at this point, blood is on their hands. 
what's happening is Jesus is forcing them to go all in. He's forcing them to double down and decide who do they say he is. They're either going to be guilty of producing false testimony, thereby incurring the same judgment they've just pronounced on him, or they're going to be guilty of killing the Son of God. This response, it blew my mind when I saw it. It's a genius. The reality is, sure, church, we deserve death too, just like everyone who placed him on the cross We deserve death, too. Like Judas, we've betrayed Jesus for far less than 30 pieces of silver. Like Peter, we've made and used Jesus as a means of obtaining our own little kingdoms and yet quickly rejected him and and fled from him when he didn't give it to us. Like Caiaphas and the council, we regularly make Jesus out to be less than God, doing away with him when he gets in the way of our plans. There's hope. There's hope in the middle of this mess and at the end of Matthew here because even when it looked like it was all lost, Jesus placed his trust in the plan of God. Trust that though being condemned and crucified and wronged, the justice of God would be satisfied, that the grace of God would be unleashed on all of those who would trust in Jesus and declare him to be the Son of God. In these these final paragraphs, before Jesus is crucified, Matthew brings together characters from across his gospel, the crowds that had followed him, the religious elite, the disciples, his betrayer. And in presenting Jesus' response to these four encounters, he's essentially asking us for a response, which is, how will we respond to Jesus? Who is it that we say he is? What kingdom are we after? What are we fighting for? What is it that we think is going to save us? We've, every single one of us, used Jesus in the same way that many of the characters in the story have. We treat him like a sidekick. We allow him to ride shotgun. But we kick him out of the car We walk away from him just like Judas did, just like we've been reading various people in the news doing when it becomes inconvenient or it doesn't give us what we want. And the challenge to me as I read this this week is just to be reminded who Jesus is. It's a summation of all of Matthew's gospel. All of these narratives come together and betray Christ all at once. And Christ graciously goes to the cross in order to reconcile us all to the Father. 